There we go. Got it. Well, thank you all for praying for Barbara and I. These uh, last two weeks have been unbelievable, would be the word I guess I would use. Um, But we would want you to know that in the midst of parting from my hero, my dad, and finding out that the cancer had spread to my brain all within a matter of a few hours, um, we looked at each other sitting on the couch as that news came in and go, well, what do you do in a situation like this? You know, this is just ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculously hard. And um, we looked at each other and we, we said, you know, one of our mentors once said, when you don't know what else to do, you thank God. And we did. Not for the cancer and certainly, you know, not for being parted, but that God knows and that he's with us. He, we're, not, we're not alone when these things happen. And we would want to tell you that in the midst of the hardness, and it is hard, um, in the midst of the hardness, Jesus is real and he's greater our testimony to you this morning is he's greater even than all of this. I don't know what else is yet to come, but at least to this point, he's greater. And, uh, and we can love him and serve him. And we're, in light of his greatness, we're fine. And, um, and so we're, we're also able to talk. We've discovered that, and it is a bit overwhelming, that it all happens at once. And we've, we've noticed that some people have, not anybody in our church family, but others, have, this last couple of weeks have been shy about talking to us because it's like, I don't know what to say, you know, which I totally get and understand. But we're really okay, and you can talk with us. And uh, we'd be glad to tell you about the goodness of the Lord that we've seen even in this last week. Um, yes. We do not yet have a date. Thanks for asking, Cheryl. Um, we saw the uh, radiation specialist who will be doing the procedure uh, on Friday. And um, the good news is the tumors are not very big, and they're not in areas of my brain that are significant to my basic functioning. So they're pretty easily targeted. And so that was all good news. Uh, the good news is this young person who's going to do this procedure is uh, one of the very best at it. And so we were very excited uh, about her as well. And, um, but our next step is to see a neurosurgeon who's going to be present in the room in case. And, uh, and then after that, we have to go back down again. And, and in the words of the carpenter, which I'm grateful for, they're going to measure twice before they cut once. And, and I'm very happy about that. So the bottom line is this next week is several setup appointments because getting set up is sort of complicated. The actual doing of it is just, okay, we're, we're on target, pull the trigger. But, um, you know, um, there's a couple of setup appointments. So there probably won't be anything happen this week. It'll probably, the procedure itself will probably take place the week following. Uh, they want to get to it, but there's a lot of setup to it, as it turns out. It's complicated. So, um, so it's kind of fitting that we return this week to 
uh, the series that we started a couple months ago called How to Solve a Problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've talked about that believers are not immune from problems, are they? And that by problems, we talked about how the scriptures define a problem as a uh, trial or a temptation or a suffering or an affliction. There's all these different synonyms that the Bible uses that could easily be rendered. You could, you could use the word problem and you'd get a good rendering of the text. And we talked about that there are at least two kinds of problems that the Bible, by way of review, two kinds of problems that the Bible says we can experience. We can experience problems because we're drawn off into sin by our own lusts, our own cravings, and appetites run wild. Uh, and that creates, that leads us into places where we have problems. Or sometimes God even directs a problem into our life. Now, why would God do that? Why would God direct a hardship, a trial, a suffering, a temptation? Uh, you know, why would, he, why would he direct something like that into the life of a believer? And we said that God does that for at least three reasons that we can identify. Sometimes he does that because we bear his name. And we experience problems simply because we bear the family name, Christian. And, and if we didn't have that name, we, there are certain problems we wouldn't ever encounter. But we're not embarrassed to bear the name of the one who loves us. And we're not embarrassed. He was not embarrassed to have our name on him on the cross. And we're not embarrassed to have his name in the world. And then we said that there are sometimes God allows problems into our lives because the scripture tells us that like oatmeal cookies, Remember, like oatmeal cookies, he's conforming us. He's taking hard things, problems, trials, sufferings, afflictions, and he's causing them, he actively causes them to conspire together to produce something good in us. And God calls that good that we would become like his son and display his glory to the world. And thirdly, God sometimes allows problems into the life of a believer because he wants us to share, like Paul wrote to the Philippians, he wants us to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. See, we, and we talked about how there are times when, when you choose to walk in the will of God, when you choose to, to um, follow the obedience of faith, that will take you into places that you wouldn't have gone if you hadn't made that choice. And sometimes it takes you into a place of hardship or pain or suffering or temptation or trial or uh, affliction. But in doing that, the only reason you're there is because God asked you to go there and you followed him in obedience like Jesus did. And when, when you do that, there's a fellowship that you get to experience with Jesus because he did that too. And you join him in, in fellowship and you get to know him better. And God allows us to experience those things that we might get to know him better. Then we talked about biblical principles, that anytime we're going to look at something like how to solve a problem, you want to pull out of the scripture principles, biblical principles that are timeless. They're not bound to this century or the last century or any particular time, but they're Biblical, they're not in any particular time. They're cultureless, they're not American, they're not African, they're not Middle Eastern, they're biblical. Uh, 
They work in any culture at any time. And lastly, we said they're non-negotiable. They're not subject to personal adjustment. That is, you can get upset with a biblical principle. You can argue with a biblical principle. You can even reject a biblical principle, but you'll never change one because it's non-negotiable. And then we began to look at the first of five biblical principles that can help us as believers approach and solve our problems in a way that pleases God. And then we said the first one, the first principle is when I'm looking at a problem, which we said is a situation or something that's just getting the best of us that we can't seem to get a handle on, we said the first thing is to decide to be honest. God cannot help a dishonest believer the way he wants to. You've got to decide to be honest. Honest about the problem that you're facing. Honest with the Lord first and foremost. Then honest with yourself. And finally honest with others around you. 90% of the problems we face are virtually solved when we decide to get honest about them. Secondly, we said well, you need to evaluate your situation in light of the word of God. And we said, remember, we said that's the difference between being, excuse me, being an opinion-oriented believer or an opinion-oriented person and being a Bible-oriented person. It's about the difference between looking at your problem and asking of that problem, what should I do about this? How can I solve this? And instead, asking the question, what does God want me to do about this? And looking into the scriptures for the answer. What does God want me to do about this problem that I'm facing? What is, how, how does God want to solve this problem that I'm facing? And we find that again in the scriptures. And uh, I'm going to pause, hit the pause button here for just a minute and put a plug in for Tuesday night for the men and encourage us to all be there Tuesday night because we're learning how to study the scriptures by going through 1 Timothy. And that is just an incredibly good time. And it is so important to learn that you can learn to feed yourself from the scripture. And, and that's what we're doing. We're not just going through 1 Timothy, but we're using 1 Timothy to learn how to feed ourselves from the scripture. And uh, it's a great time. Encourage all the men to come and bring a friend who'd like to learn that too. Which brings us today to principle number three. And the principle number three, I didn't type it out right for Laura. It would be this. Principle number three is not only decide to be honest, not only evaluate your situation or your problem in light of the word of God, but also, thirdly, consider Jesus and then follow him in the obedience of faith. Consider Jesus and follow him in the obedience of faith. Okay? Now, there are three aspects uh, of the life of Christ that I want to quickly consider this morning together. And the first aspect is that the, life, the Bible is full, the Scripture, the Word of God, is all about Jesus. It's full of Him. And one of the greatest mistakes a believer can make, ever make, is to neglect to discuss it to neglect, excuse me, to study the life of Christ as it's revealed in the book. 
See, the Bible is all about Jesus. It's filled with him. Let me take you on a quick trip through the word of God to illustrate that for you. Did you know that the first prophecy in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, is about Jesus? Where right after Adam and Eve sinned, what did God turn and say to the serpent? He will crush you. He will crush your head. The very first prophecy of the Bible is about Jesus. He said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It was about Jesus. And the close, I told you it would be a quick trip, the close of the Bible in Revelation twenty-two twenty. do you know what that says? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He's at the beginning of the story, and he's at the end, and he is all through the middle. That's what people say, what is this book about? And the quick answer is, Jesus. The book is about him. It's his story. In Luke 24, 27, which John looked at just two weeks ago, it says, in beginning, Jesus talking to, the, to Cleopas and his buddy on the road to Emmaus, he said, in beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, which is pretty much the balance of the known scripture at that time, um, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What's the Bible all about anyway? It's about Jesus Christ. Are you aware that, in the, four, that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are really simply portraits of him, each showing a different aspect of who he is. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Did you know that in the four short chapters of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he mentions Jesus Christ 62 times? What's it all about? It's all about Jesus. And I remind you that at the end of the Bible, at the very end of the book, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. You want a simple five-point outline of the Bible, the entire Bible? Here it is. The first point would be the Old Testament. And the outline point would be, what's the, what's the Old Testament about? It's the preparation for him. The second point would be the Gospels. And that's the advent or the presentation of him. The third point would be the book of Acts, which would be the propagation concerning him. What is the gospel and how did it go about Jesus Christ and how did it go forth? The fourth point would be the letters, which are the explanation about knowing him. What does it mean to be in Christ and how do I experience knowing Jesus Christ? And then the fifth point would be the book of Revelation, which is the consummation of all things in him. That's what this book is about. It's about Jesus Christ. Why is that important? And why, as I begin to consider Jesus, do I need to remember that that's what the book is about? Because the fact that the entire book, which also points to all of human history, is all about Jesus Christ, reminds me 
that it's all about him. And it's not about me or you. And when I'm in a problem, I need to come back to that. I need to come back to that reminder. I need to consider, after, after being honest and thinking about what the Word of God has to say about my problem, I need to come back and consider Jesus and consider that life was meant to be about Him, not about me. And as I do that, I'd be, you'll be surprised. You begin to get a picture on what the answer to your problem begins to look like. Second reason why you need to consider Christ, consider Jesus, is simply because God's word says to. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I debated whether to use this scripture this morning or not. Went over it and over it and over it, and then I decided to use it after all. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I will just use it in context because the context is important. The context of this, Peter is talking to people who are believers who are slaves. And they're wondering about how they should respond as a slave to their master. And look what, look what um, he says, verse 18. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it, is, for it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The reason we need to consider Jesus is in this passage, as well as in others, like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, lest you go weary and lose heart. You know, and that's one of, that's one of the um, texts in the scripture that you can run through the ringer one way, and it says something, and when you run it through the ringer backwards, it essentially says the, other, the same thing. Here's what it sounds like if you, when you put it through front ways, it says, consider Jesus so that you don't grow weary and give up and turn back and lose heart and become spiritually chicken. That's why it's important to consider him. You can run it through the other way, and it sounds like this. Fail to consider Jesus, and you will give up. You will lose heart. You will turn back. You will turn spiritual chicken. That's how important it is. And the reason 
it's important to consider Jesus is simply because the Scripture says so. And we could keep pointing to places where I've given you two, but we could keep going. It says so. And when the Bible tells us to do something, we don't need a special leading, a special feeling of peace, a special feeling of some kind in order to do what the Bible tells us to do. We are obedient to that because of faith. We trust that God loves us and he tells us things for our good and we are obedient out of that. And the reason we consider Jesus is because God's word tells us to and because when you look at the life of Christ, you see, the as revealed in the scriptures, you see the picture of what it's like to follow in the obedience of faith. His life gave us the example. He gave us what that looks like. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when John's up here week after week talking about the obedience of faith and how I need to follow Jesus and the obedience, that can sound just a little ethereal and not quite practical to where I live. And that's not his problem, that's my problem. But when I look at the life of Christ, you, you ask, well, what does that look like? What does it look like? What does the obedience of faith look like? And the answer to that question is, look at Jesus. Because he shows us what it looks like. Scripture tells us that we can gain great encouragement by looking at the life of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, come on now. There we go. Hebrews chapter 4 and uh, verse 14 says, or excuse me, that's not right. I mean, why am I in Timothy? Hebrews. There we go. Hebrews 4 and verse 14 says, Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Now, what is that word tempted synonymous with? Problems. See, We don't have faith in a God who is an impersonal force who just exists out there in the universe and binds the universe together by by whatever. We love a God who is personal. And not only who is personal, but who did not just sit in heaven and go, boy, you guys sure made a mess of things. Hope you can figure it out. But he came here. He he stepped into our mess and became one of us. And then he lived here. And, And it says that he, right here it says, he experienced all the temptations, all of the problems that you and I experience. 
And therefore, he understands. That means, brothers and sisters, that when we talk to Jesus, we're talking to someone who understands. He understands what it is to have a problem. Not only that, but he understands all the basic problems that you and I will ever face. Because right there in Hebrews, it said that he experienced them himself. He came here and experienced them himself. But in experiencing those, he said, it says he did so without sin. He did so without becoming selfish and self-centered about them. You go, oh yeah? Oh yeah? Well, hey Jim, has Jesus Christ ever been misunderstood by people? I've been really misunderstood this week by my family, by my work co-workers, and it was really tough. Has anybody really, that's a problem. Anybody been misunderstood? Has Jesus ever been misunderstood? Men and women, you will never talk to anyone who more understands what it means to be misunderstood than when you talk to Jesus. People constantly misunderstood and misquoted him. Oh yeah? Has he ever been laughed at, sneered at, rejected by his friends because of his relationship with God and his stand for righteousness? John 1 verses 10 to 11 said, He came into the world, and though the world was made by him and through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. Yeah, I think he understands that. Well, Jim, has Jesus ever been hurt by his family? Does he have family members who refuse to believe? Well, I'll remind you, he says, he says uh, in John chapter 7, it says that not even his brothers believed in him. And that's talking about his half-brothers, because after he was born, Joseph and Mary went on to have more children. And that scripture is talking about those, those people, and they did not believe. He understands family. Well, does Jesus know what it's like to be lonely and tempted? Well, Scripture says he was never married. He understands what that's like. It says he traveled away from home a lot. He spent 40 days alone in the desert with no one for company but the devil. I think that says something. Then there's the whole episode in the Garden of Gethsemane. You want to talk about loneliness and being tempted? Think about the garden. And then finally, you want to talk about, does he understand what it's like to be lonely and tempted? Think about Jesus hanging on the cross. He understands. Well, Jim, has Jesus ever been treated unfairly? (laughs) Does he understand what, I have been treated so unfairly. Does he understand that? Well, I would say the crucifixion right through the illegal trial Um, right down to the last pounding of the nails into his hands answers that. Does he know what it's like to just be exhausted? To be so tired from from doing what what I'm supposed to be doing and and how life just presses in on me and I'm I'm so exhausted I just can't hardly think straight and keep my eyes open. Does he understand that? 
Well, you'll remember, where was Jesus in the, when he was in the boat with the disciples in Mark chapter 4? Where was Jesus in the middle of a huge hurricane-type storm? He was asleep. And if you read what had happened to him the previous 24 hours to that trip in the boat, you understand why he was asleep. He was exhausted. Well, Jim, you don't understand the pressure that life is bringing to bear on me. You don't understand the tensions and the anxieties that I'm living with right now. Does Jesus understand that? Has he ever had to live with that kind of pressure and tension? Well, in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says, And being in an agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That was in the garden. Where the fate of every person in the history of the world was hanging on what he would choose to do next. No one has ever faced pressure like that and tension and anxiety like that. You see, I went through all of those, and we could keep going, but I think we made the point. You will never talk to anyone who more understands your problem than when you talk to Jesus. Because he came here, and he lived here, and he, he knows what we're talking about. And we're not alone. And when, we go, when you consider Jesus, when you come back to Jesus, you remember that life is about him, and you remember that you're talking to somebody who gets it, somebody who understands what you're feeling. Well, one of the things that I like to do when I listen to John from Sunday to Sunday, and I think you can do to anybody that you listen to or should do, is you should always ask of John. I always ask in my head. I don't always shout it out at him. But I, I ask in my head as I'm listening to him as he, as he shares each Sunday, so what? <laughs> What's the big deal about what you're talking about here? Why is this a big deal? You know, we're fortunate to have a pastor who explains every week why what he's telling us is, in fact, a big deal. And it is. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got it over the mics, don't I? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second question I always want to ask John and, and have him answer as he's going through is how? I mean, this is great theology, but I live, like you do, in a practical world. And I need to know, how do I walk out that door and make it work? How does it actually work? Good theology, meaning that it's accurate and truthful. Truth works because it's true. It works. So how? So we're going to wrap this morning by asking that question. Okay, so Jim, I've considered Jesus in my problem. And I've considered um, that he wants me to follow in obedience. But to do what Jesus wants me to do is hard. <laughs> I, I don't think I can do it. 
So how? How can I follow him in the obedience of faith? Ever notice that the obedience of faith is sometimes hard? How? Well, everybody knows how you follow, how you do the obedience of faith, right? How you take the next step that God's asking you to take, how you obey him. We know why we obey him. We obey him because he loved us first. It's not an I have to obey. It's an I get to obey. And, and the how, everybody knows how, right? You get up early in the morning, whatever early is for you, and you say, you, you, you gather up all your strength, and you gather up all your courage for the day, and you say, today I am going to live my life just like Jesus. Right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to be like him in the midst of my problems. And you grit your teeth and you say, okay. And you are for about five minutes. And then all of a sudden you're not anymore like Jesus. And you grit your teeth and you make promises to God and you get down on yourself for being such a sinner and you say, okay, tomorrow it's going to be different. And filled with resolve, you set out to make tomorrow different. And it is different. You last 10 minutes tomorrow. You see, the dynamic of what's going on here is that you and I, when we talk about the obedience of faith, we're being called upon to produce something that we have no power to produce. Literally, the life of God in Christ. We don't have the power to do that. But that dynamic of the Christian life is you don't have to. We don't have to. See, the exciting dynamic of the Christian life is you don't have to produce that. It's already, he, he put it in you. If you know Christ, if, he li- if, you, if you put your faith in him and are following him, then the scripture says the very spirit of the living God, the very life of God in Christ, the life of the kingdom of God now resides in you and in me. And all I have to do is turn it loose. Well, how do you do that? Well, everybody knows you work hard, right? Isn't that how you came to faith? You came to faith because you worked hard to be right with God, right? No. You came to know God. You came into relationship with God because you trusted him to do what you couldn't do. Right? It was his gift. And when you did that, he saved you not just from something, his eternal wrath, but he saved you to something, the obedience of faith for his glory. And it's accomplished exactly the same way. By believing him and trusting him. I realize I'm on shaky ground, but Cameron's listening, so I'll use it. Imagine for a moment that my life had been a little different, 
And I showed up one day, and the Red Sox decided they wanted to hire me. And I got, I got uniform number 48, which is a spare they happen to have today. Uh, and it was opening day at Fenway Park, and number 48 runs out to left field for the Red Sox. And everybody's in the stands looking, who's 48? 48 Rhodes. Never heard of him. But he must be pretty good. He's playing in the major leagues. So I guess, you know, the Red Sox wouldn't have hired him if he wasn't very good. So he must be pretty good. So he's playing in the So, yeah. And so the first inning goes by, and no balls are hit out to left field. And so I look like a major leaguer. Second inning goes by. Again, no balls are hit out to left field, and I'm still looking pretty good out there. I'm all dressed up in the red side. I got the right uniform, number 48, looking pretty good. But you see, in the third inning, life is going to change, because in the third inning, I have to come to bat. And I'm not going to fool anybody anymore, because when I step into the plate, up to the plate, I'm going to be asked to do something that I have no power to do, and that is to produce a hit in the major leagues off of a major league pitcher. Now, just suppose for a moment, a little ridiculous, but we'll push the, we'll push the illustration. Suppose that the major league leading home run hitter, Mookie Betts, could come into my life at that moment. And he goes, Jim, don't worry, I got this. Let's just let one go by. <laughs> okay, good, yeah, fine. He says, now, he says, just relax and let me swing. And all of a sudden, the bat moves and we connect, we barrel the ball, and home run number 67 leaves the park. You know? Come into my life, Mookie Betts. No. But... Um, you get the idea. The Christian life is like that. It's not a case of us doing it. It's a case of allowing the Holy Spirit of Jesus who lives in us to live his life out through us. And you know, the world doesn't need to see Jim Rhodes or you. What the world of the gang, the crowd out there, who's busily just happily tra traversing the path to destruction, eternal destruction, the person they need to meet is not Jim. The person they need to meet is Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we let Jesus live out. That's what the obedience of faith looks like. Early in my Christian life, when I was, yay, just barely 21, I'd been dating this incredible young woman named Barbara for four years. And people were wondering when we would finally get married. And uh, I cooked up an incredible engagement that would have put all these ones you see on Facebook to shame. And um, it, even back shortly after the Earth's crust hardened and Barbara was just a child. And, um, and it was wonderful. But then about 12 hours after that wonderful night, and she had said yes and taken my ring, fear absolutely gripped my heart. <laughs> what have I done? And it continued to grip my heart. 
What have I done? And it wasn't that I thought Barbara was wrong or bad or not the right person or anything like that, but it was like, how can I know this is what God wants? I could be making a terrible mistake here. And my, you know, my, we talk about as Christians, we're like cracked pots. Well, the crack in my pot runs through my brain, which is what they're discovering now anyway. But, but um, you know, and, and so there was just this incredible fear. And eventually I gave into that fear and broke the engagement. And um, right before we'd been, we'd been working together out in California and uh, Barbara was having to come home to visit with all of her partners who were supporting her ministry with crew, uh, kind of like Danny for the summer. And, um, and so she needed to write them a letter to tell them she was engaged and going to marry this fella. So I was having nervousness and whatever. She said, can we send the letter? And so I said, yeah, go ahead, send the letter. She dropped a couple hundred letters in the mail. And um, the next day I said, you know, I don't think this is going to work. And, uh, and I think we need to, like, become, I don't know, what do you say, disengaged, unengaged? <laughs> and... Um, and, um, and then she was leaving, and she had to go home, and she was going to spend the next three weeks visiting with all these people. So all of these appointments, they all had gifts for her because she was engaged and going to get married, only not so much anymore. And, uh, and yet I'm still alive. Here I am, and I have two wonderful children. And uh, so this, does, this story does have a happy ending. And... Uh, But you see, what I learned is I'd been a Christian just long enough to know what God expected of a husband and a father. And when I looked at that, I thought, I can't do that. There's no, I know who I am, and I know that I cannot be that. And I was right. In my own strength and in my own efforts, I can't. But that's the exact point. We're not supposed to do it in our own strength and our own effort. We're supposed to trust in Christ and depend on him and his power to do it. It only took me about nine months to figure that out. And I called, the second time wasn't nearly as Facebook worthy. It happened on the phone. And uh, I asked Barbara to, if she would be willing to try this once again. And, uh, and she said, well, like, is this the time where I say yes and we actually like get married? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, like, like when? Because that was the question that had plagued us the first time around. And um, I said, just as soon as you can make it, just spare me and let's make it as soon as we can. And uh, so we were married eight weeks later. And uh, I wrote the struggle that I had experienced into our vows. And if you'll pardon me, I'm going to read them to you because it... it uh, It explains what I learned. I said, Barb, my heart belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and my life is dedicated to serving him. In his great love for us, he's chosen us to be his children, and now he's called us to be together. I know that as a result of that, that you are the woman that God has created to complete me, and I will abide with you here on earth until our Heavenly Father calls one or both of us to abide with him in heaven. I commit myself by the power of the grace that only God can give 
to resolve problems or difficulties that arise between us in a manner that pleases him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loves his church. Therefore, I purpose to lead you spiritually by means of God's word and his indwelling spirit, just as Christ leads his children daily in how they walk. I'll meet your physical needs, just as Jesus meets the needs of his children daily, faithfully. I'll protect you, just as Christ protects his children from the evils of the world. I'll be considerate of you and of your desires, just as Christ empathizes with his children as their father, as their high priest. I will comfort and encourage you, just as Christ comforts and encourages his children as they endure the trials and problems of this life. I will bestow honor upon you, just as Jesus bestows honor upon his children. I will pray for you, just as Jesus prays unceasingly for his children in the presence of his heavenly Father. And I will love you, sacrificially, giving of myself, just as Jesus demonstrated his love for his children by giving himself to die on a cross that they might be saved from their sin. All of these things, I said, all of these things I will do. See, that was the problem. I will do, not by my own strength or in my own power, but by the power of him who lives in me. Yeah, nice comeback, huh? And, uh, but you see, that's how you solve a problem. You remember Jesus. You consider Jesus. And when you do, you remember that life isn't about you or me, me or you. It's about him. It was always meant to be that way. One day, when we are all family together in glory, we're going to find out that it's all about him 24-7, which is how it's supposed to be here. We just don't live that out like we will then. But it's supposed to be like that. People need to see Jesus, not you and me. And when we are honest about the problem we're facing, we consider what God would have us to do about it, the the thing we bump up against right away when we do that is, where does the power come from? I don't, I can't do it. You're right, you can't. People look at me and go, how are you facing Brain cancer. I can't. (laughs) But Jesus can, because it's not about me, it's about him. And he's greater. And when we trust in him, you see, the obedience of faith is, you consider Jesus, and you consider who he is and what he's done for you, and then you trust him, and you take that step of obedience. Not because you feel like it, not because it, well, that's the right thing. It feels right. Who cares whether it might be, it might not feel right, but it might be the right thing to do. You take it because you know that it's the next step that Jesus wants you to take. And the only reason, Jesus tells us in his word what to do. The only reason we have to do it, the only strength that we have to do it is our faith in him. 
We trust him. We take the step. And then you know the wonderful thing that happens when we do that? When we, when we practice the obedience of faith? You know what the wonderful thing is? He does like he always does. He shows up and his life lives out through us. And people see Jesus, not us. And he receives glory. Because when Jesus shows up, you can't help but give him glory. He's wonderful. Decide to be honest. Evaluate your situation in light of the word of God. It's not about what I would do. It's about what God would have me do or be. And then consider Jesus. And like him, obey, practice the obedience of faith, believing that God is going to come in and fill in the steps after you. And that we'll see, we do that because we believe he's going to show up. And he's going to change me to be more like him. And he's going to change others. Because that's what he promises to do when he shows up. And that's what people see. And that's what they need to see. And God gives us our problems so that he might, so that people might see, so that we might see and others might see Jesus through us. That's why he does it. And in the end, we'll all party together and celebrate and celebrate when we see the whole story, how God was glorified. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you might be glorified in the solving of our problems as a church family. Whatever they are, Lord, they're not big ones and small ones. There's just problems. And it, and it doesn't matter how big or small it is. If it's mine, it's big to me. <laughs> and it takes faith to step out and trust you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would give them hearts to believe and depend on you and to trust you in the solving of their problems. And that in doing so, we might come to know you better, both individually and as a family, and that the world might see you and seeing you, that they might know you like we do, and that they might, and Lord, would you open their hearts to believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.